Welcome in to Words with Wallace. I'm your host, Nick Wallace. Coming at you, it is Thursday, April 20th, a very special day. Uh, <laughs> happy 420 uh, to all those who celebrate. Uh, clearly, I'm pretty baked, pretty high right now. Uh, pretty high on some playoff basketball, that is, all right? Let's, let's not waste any time. Let's get into it, man. We are officially uh, two games into every single playoff series, so I wanted to uh, fly around real quick, go through each and every series, give my thoughts, see if... Uh, if I've already abandoned my picks from just <laughs> a little bit earlier this week, um, and and just kind of check in, maybe do a panic meter on a couple teams that are pretty worried, um, and we can get right into it. So let's start off in the Eastern Conference. Let's start off with Bucks Heat. Now, you know this is a pretty interesting series. You know it started off people. Uh, I, I think the world was pretty shocked with Miami being able to pull out Game One. Um, the series is now at one-one. For those that don't know. Um, and really, it was pretty impressive from Miami, right? It, it's, you know, they started off game one. Um, I know that there were some pretty big injury news that we'll get into in a sec. But just kind of giving Miami the benefit of the doubt because they were, you know, competitive and they immediately punched Milwaukee in the mouth at the start of game one. And it's, you know, really exactly why, uh, you know, people like myself were, uh, as Celtics fans, were really scared to play Miami in round one. Because, you know, not saying Miami would have upset, you know, is going to upset Milwaukee or you know, that they would have upset the Celtics. It's really just a matter of them kind of dragging you into their swamp and, and beating you up. Like, it's not going to be easy. You know, you're going to have to put more miles on your star players than you'd like to in a round one series that should be a breeze for, you know, a Milwaukee team that was the best team in basketball during the regular season. But let's get into the injury news, right? Because, you know, game one, um, you know, we, we saw a prominent injury to both sides uh, of the matchup, right? You had Tyler Harrow, who unfortunately broke his hand pretty early on in that game. Um, and the bigger news, of course, Giannis, you know, the best player in the world, um, on, a, on a charge call that got a little bit of controversy, I don't know. But, you know, he ended up taking an awkward fall while going to the hoop pretty pretty hard like he does. Um, and he, he injured his back, right? He fell pretty awkwardly. He looked like he was in substantial, substantial pain. I think he ended up playing on for a couple more plays, but then they, eventually they pulled him out of the game and ruled him out. Um, and then eventually he didn't even play in game two. So I think that's the question, right? Like, how hurt is Giannis? And I think he must be pretty banged up, you know, for them not to have played him in game two. Now, I know M Milwaukee ended up really taking it to Miami in game two, which we'll talk about in a sec. But I think it's a real concern, right? Like, I, I understand it's around one series and the Bucks are the best team in basketball and you want to play it safe with a guy like Giannis. But you're still down 0-1. And this is a Miami team that, like we said, they have some history with the Bucks. They knocked them out of the playoffs a couple years ago. Um, you know, even last year, you know, the, the the Heat ended up going all the way to the Eastern Conference Finals. Like, they're clearly a, a formidable opponent, right? Even without Tyler Harrow. So the fact that, you, you know, if Giannis is questionable and he's a game-time call and you end up ruling him out, I think that's a real concern because you're really rolling the dice that your team's going to be able to pull it out. Now, it's clearly a gamble that went well for the Bucks, and the series is tied, and now really they're in the driver's seat to potentially rest Giannis again. Um, you really just don't want to fall down two games to this Miami team and have to work your way back. So I think that they at least, you know, earned themselves some flexibility with maybe resting Giannis game three as well. But I do think just based on the injury and based on where they're at, they're a real contender. I would expect to see Giannis back by game four either way. You don't want him missing too much time. Uh, but let's kind of talk about game two because it was complete domination. If you were like me, you were probably watching the Lakers game, um, the primetime game. And I know the Bucks uh, heat game was actually on. Uh, what was it, NBA TV, which doesn't even really feel like a real playoff game. So it was kind of in the middle of the two primetime games. So I was watching the Lakers game and was going to click it over to the Bucks, and 
at that point, it was like I think the second quarter, and the Bucks were already up by thirty points. Like it was total domination. So I really didn't end up paying much attention to that game. Uh, to be transparent, with the Nuggets and Wolves playing later that night, later last night, anyway. Um, but yeah, it was a total dominating effort from the Bucks. You know, I think it was really impressive from Brook Lopez and Drew Holiday to kind of step up their game on the offensive side of the ball, which isn't exactly what they're known for. And Miami's offense, from you know, I ended up watching that game back a bit. It's predictably really gross now. You know, Reggie Miller in game one made a really interesting point <laughs> that got a lot of backlash in saying that, you know, he thought that, uh, you know, Tyler Harrow uh, was more valuable to the Heat than Giannis was to the Bucks. And I do get what he was trying to say in that, hey, like the Bucks are still a really good team without Giannis, which is kind of surprising. But, you know, the Heat really need Harrow's offense, which is fair. I mean, he's still completely wrong <laughs> in what he said. I mean, Reggie Miller's been off the rails for a while now, but... I do think that there's some merit to what he's saying because the Heat offense was disgusting. Harrow's really the only guy besides, I mean, Jimmy can create his own shot. I shouldn't say the only guy, but, you know, he really is one of two players on that entire roster that can consistently create their own shot. Like, for as good as Bam is, I think his offensive struggles in the playoffs especially are pretty well documented. He really doesn't have, like, a, a post game or anything like that to, to kind of create his own offense. So they're hurting. They're, they're putting a lot of miles on Jimmy, as, they, as, they, as you would expect. Um, so I, I really don't like the Heat's chances uh, in this matchup, especially if I do expect Giannis to return. But, um, you know, it was good that they were able to kind of, you know, show, show the world what they were about and by winning game one, even with Giannis playing for a bit of that game. Um, and, and we'll see. I think, you know, like I said, the story of this matchup is how healthy is Giannis when we see him back. I would expect him to come back in game four, and I would expect the Bucks to still take care of this series. Moving on to Celtics versus Hawks, this is going to be a quick one. Um, you know, I think it's been pretty obvious, you know, the Celtics are, are in a totally different class than the Hawks. The Celtics are up 2-0 in this series. You know, two blowouts. I mean, I guess if you, you know, actually watch the games, you would know that the Hawks actually came out with some fire in game two. And, you know, they were able to, you know, basically take a pretty commanding early lead on, on the Celtics in the first quarter. I think they were up by 11 at one point. Um, but the Celtics basically evaporated that lead right away, and they even had a substantial lead themselves going into halftime. And it was all seized the rest of the way after that first quarter. So, you know, I think really the only storyline here, I don't really want to waste much time talking about Atlanta. I don't think that they're a very good basketball team. I think it's a really tough matchup for the Hawks. It's a brutal matchup for Trey Young. Um, at least you saw him do something on the offensive side of the ball in game two, unlike game one. But I think it's really the story for the Celtics, right? I'm obviously a, a biased Celtics fan here, but, you know, I think it, it's a pretty positive sign that. Uh, Joe Missoula has really cut down the rotation, right? I think that's the main takeaway as a Celtics fan. There's only eight guys playing. Um, you know, it's basically the seven best players that you would expect. And, it, you know, in a shocking turn of events, Sam Hauser actually grabbed that eighth and final spot. Now he hasn't, you know, really been, you know, he, I guess he's played some meaningful minutes because they've been up in these games. But um, it is interesting. I don't think it necessarily matters who's in that eighth spot for the Atlanta series. Like I, we obviously would be just as successful um, if we had Hauser there or if we had, you know, Grant R Williams is really the guy that comes to mind, right? Like the story here is that, that Grant is the is the ninth man. He's the odd man out in this particular series. So um, I think it's interesting. Maybe it comes back to his contract situation and the Celtics are just trying to, you know, make a statement and saying like, hey, maybe you're not as valuable um, as you think clearly by him declining the uh, the contract extension he was offered earlier. Um, so I think that that could look into it. I don't, I don't think the Celtics would be one to really play mind games given that they are, um, you know, a title team They're They have title aspirations. So I don't think that they would necessarily get cute, even though they could against Atlanta. 
Um, but I think it's just positive to see Missoula, you know, making that decision, right? We, I, I've been very critical of his late game lineup decisions all year. You know, I think this is a step in the right direction. He's making some difficult calls. We're obviously seeing more of our best players. We're seeing more Derek White in crunch time. We're seeing more Malcolm Brogdon. So I think it's good that he's getting, you know, getting some real reps in here, obviously, in the playoffs in his first couple of playoff games of his coaching career. Um, and he's making some tough decisions. And now I don't think this necessarily means that we're not going to see Grant anymore the rest of the way. That would be ridiculous. I think we'll see him next round when they inevitably end up playing Philadelphia. That's that's where we're headed. Um, I think just because he is a bigger body and he's a couple more fouls to throw at Embiid, even though he does knock down free throws. But it, it just helps to have, you know, the Celtics are a big team overall when you look across their lineup. But in terms of actual big man depth, you know, we know there's not much. I'd, I'd much rather see Grant out there uh, trying his best to guard Embiid than I would Luke Cornett. I think that's just going to be free points for Embiid. Um, at least Grant, you know, can hold up a little bit because he is pretty strong. And uh, we know his value if it comes down to a Buck series, which I think we're headed that way as well. Um, you know, we know what he was able to do against Milwaukee last year. So uh, it'll be interesting to see how he responds because I think he will get an opportunity as soon as next round um, to really get back in this rotation. And hopefully he doesn't take it to heart and understands the decisions that Joe Missoula had to make were in the best interest of the team. And um, we'll go from there. But I think that's really the only takeaway for me anyway from Celtics Hawks besides. Uh, oh, I'd be remiss to say that uh, I have an inside source at the Garden and uh, who was there for game one and. Um, you know, Connor wanted his name to be left out of it, so we won't say any names, but uh, he just wanted to let everyone know that the, the garden is alive. Uh, the garden is alive. You know, the city's buzzing. Uh, don't know much about hockey, but I hear the bees are rolling too. So it's a good time to be a Boston sports fan. Um, certainly exciting to watch this play out. I, I feel really good about my pick of the Celtics right now. Obviously, it's still early, uh, but hopefully they're able to take care of business and, and continue to close out the Hawks in four games. Moving on to another series that I have to be transparent is taking place like right now, or at least is starting pretty soon. Uh, Sixers versus Nets. Uh, I had to record this podcast at some point with how many games are going on. We got two to three games every night, uh, and I had to make the cut somewhere. And frankly, I could care less about 76ers Nets. Um, as I mentioned before, I don't think the Nets are a real playoff team. That They're probably the worst team in the entire playoff picture that, that's still playing right now. Uh, and if you missed it, it's a 2-0 series, right? Philly's taking care of business both games. Um, you know, my takeaways is I'm obviously, again, looking at through the lens of a Celtics fan that's inevitably going to be seeing this 76ers team next round. Um, and so I'm just trying to, you know, really dissect Philly and, and what I'm seeing from them. It, it I, I can't help but be extremely unimpressed with PJ Tucker and the fact that he's just out there getting cardio. Like, I don't even think he scored last game in game two for the Sixers. Like, you know, I understand that he does a lot more to, you know, for, on, for a basketball team rather than scoring the ball. Like, he's really just going to sit there in the corner on offense and, you know, shoot corner threes at a pretty high clip. You don't want to leave him wide open. But I just feel like their best five, he, he's not in it. Like, I know it's a, it's, it would be a weird five with Harden, Maxi. Um, Embiid, Harris, and then I think Melton should be that fifth guy. I'm really impressed with what I see from DeAndre Melton, um, you know, or excuse me, DeAnthony Melton. Um, the plus minus numbers really like him this series, and they've really liked him all year. I think, you know, in terms of uh, a defender of the other team's best guard, I think he's an obvious choice for that. I don't think PJ Tucker really has the foot speed for that anymore. He's, you know, PJ will be more useful and just being another body to throw at Tatum next series, but. Um, I think it's interesting as well that Doc Rivers, coach of the 76ers, is, you know, he's still playing a 10-man rotation right now. I, I don't think that they've exactly found their groove in terms of a playoff rotation quite yet, despite the fact that they've been taking care of business. Um, so I think that, you know, again, 
as far as the series as a whole, 76ers versus Nets, I think it's over. I think it's going to be a sweep or maybe a five-game victory for the 76ers here. Um, just like I said earlier in the week, I just don't think the Nets have the horses despite the best efforts of Macau Bridges. I would like to see the Nets give Seth Curry more burn because I just love Seth Curry. I always have, always will, um, and think he's as good of a playmaker as they have besides Bridges. Like, I just, again, I've, I've been on the record of anti-Dinwiddie. So the more Seth Curry I can see and the less Dinwiddie, I'll be happier as a neutral fan watching the game but uh, i do expect the sixers to take care of business here in four or five games uh moving on to an absolute dogfight that we have on our hands here in the Cavs versus the knicks now this has been pretty fun um it was a 1-1 series i know game one uh that the knicks ended up winning was really close and competitive and game two uh was a pretty convincing win for the Cavs. but you know this is going to be a dogfight right i think that this you know is, is right there with the most competitive series as, as far as two evenly matched teams um, and I wanted to start at it by looking at things from the Knicks side of things. Um, game one was really impressive, you know, really with Jalen Brunson, right? Um, I feel like yeah, I was kind of listening back to my pod last week, and I think I was pretty dismissive of, of Brunson, um, or it came off across as if I was dismissive of Brunson, and I didn't mean it to be because, you know, I was just kind of looking at the rosters and looking at the matchup on paper, and I just like what Cleveland has in having, you know, two guards that are, you know, all-star level talents in Garland and Mitchell and two guys that can really close out the game in an effective way. And so they obviously have an advantage there over the Knicks that have has one of those guys. But, you know, Brunson was the best of the trio in game one. There's really no debating that. I know Mitchell finished with a, a pretty gaudy point total in game one. But Brunson really closed out the game, and it's just unbelievable how a dude of his size can be so effective in that, you know, you know, basically block scoring area. Like he, I think he led the league in scoring from that spot last year. He probably did the same this year, um, which is really interesting. Like that middle of the paint kind of area. Um, he's so fun to watch and, and them being able to have a guy that can play make like that. Um, that's what you see, right? Like even for teams like, you know, Denver that we'll talk about in a little bit and Philadelphia um, that have their best players as centers, right? Like just the way the game is played, you need to have a guard that's able to create his own shot because they are going to be the ones to close out the games that are going to be handling the ball and distributing to others. And so Brunson, the way he closed game one, he was the best player on the court. And I thought that that was really impressive. But game two was a different story, right? Uh, you know, the Cavs really kind of punched them in the face and uh, were able to kind of run away with that one pretty early. Um, I, I think that that one really comes down to, you know, game two and, and just the series moving forward. I think the X factor for the Knicks is going to be R.J. Barrett. Um, it is. Po I should mention first that it's positive to see Julius Randle healthy. I know when I recorded last episode, you know, wasn't too sure, you know, what level of health he was at, but he's been out there and he's been playing pretty solid and, and he's got a brutal matchup on his hands with Mobley and Allen to battle uh, on the Cleveland side of the ball. But I think he's played pretty well, all things considered. But again, I think the X factor for the Knicks is RJ Barrett. Um, especially because I'll talk about this with Cleveland in a sec, but they're, they're still figuring out who their fifth guy is, right? You know, during the regular season, it looked like the fifth guy in the, in the closing lineup and starting lineup for that matter for the Cavs was going to be Isaac Okoro, who's a really great on-ball defender and, you know, somebody that really just has to knock down open shots and guard the other team's best player to kind of make up for the lack of, you know, defensive intensity from Garland and Mitchell. But in game two, we saw Karis LeVert have a massive game and he was a huge reason that the Cavs came out and, and beat the Knicks. And I think that on the other side of the ball, it comes back to R.J. Barrett because he's the one that needs to take advantage of Karis LeVert on defense. He's the one that needs to be, you know, pick either LeVert. If, if it is going to be that group with LeVert, Garland, and Mitchell out there, there's really not a talented defender in that bunch. Like, again, they're, they're going to have rim protection with Mobley and Allen, but it's going to be about R.J. Barrett and how he can create his own shot and, and give, you know, 
Brunson time um, to kind of relax and play off ball and just be a good shooter off the ball as well as Randall and give them a break and how he's able to punish defenders and, and shoot when he's open. Like, I think that that is going to be the X factor for the Knicks because they need to find a way to punish um, the lack of defense in the, in the backcourt for the Cavs. Uh, on the Cleveland side of the ball, like I talked about, they're just still trying to figure out who that fifth man is. Um, it was pretty surprising to see Okoro basically get benched outright last game. And um, I guess it wasn't too surprising with how well Levert played. I want to say Levert had close to 30 points, which is pretty impressive. But um, that's who Karis Levert is. He's a really good shooter. He's a really good scorer. Um, he's just pretty disinterested on defense most of the time. And that's kind of the ha- the trade-off. So it is interesting to see that, you know, even with Garland and Mitchell in the backcourt that they would, you know, Bickerstaff, coach of the Cavs, would opt for, you know, basically putting in more offense in that fifth spot. But um, it, it seemed to work for them. And uh, sometimes you got to fight fire with fire. So I think Levert earned his spot for, for game three. So I'm looking forward to that and seeing uh, how many minutes he plays and if Okoro or Osman kind of get back in the rotation there. Or, um, or certainly they'll be in the rotation, but exactly how many minutes they'll get, we will see. Um, and game two, I think, you know, the big difference along with Levert was how much better Darius Garland played, right? Um, you know, he ended up, he finished game one with 17 points, but he was pretty, you know, passive down the stretch. And in game two, it was totally opposite. It seemed like they kind of ran the offense through Garland as opposed to Mitchell in game one. Uh, Garland finished with 30-something points, and he's just such an incredible creator um, that it's pretty easy for him to kind of get lost in the flow of things when Mitchell's really cooking. But, you know, in order for the Cavs to be the best version of themselves, they need Garland to be as aggressive as possible because he is that good of a shooter. He is that good of a scorer. And it's like dual-wielding pistols, man. Like, like Mitchell and Garland are so fun uh, playing together. That, you know, again, with Mobley still developing on the offensive end and Jared Allen offensively not being much more than a lob threat, um, those two guys need to both produce at a high level if, if they're going to make some noise and even beat the Knicks in round one and um, give the Bucks any sort of scare in round two. Uh, that's what they're going to need. I think that the downfall for Cleveland is that they literally have zero bigs off the bench. Like, I, I haven't really talked about this before, and I know that that was the case in the regular season, but... It's bad, man. Like it's they really got no one. Like Dean Wade is is kind of that guy, but he's not really in the rotation for them. Like it's all you know guards and wings that play off the bench. Like maybe we see some Danny Green, you know, Okoro, Osman, as I mentioned, as well as Levert. Like, but they don't have a big that plays off the bench. So uh, obviously the, the nice thing is that Mobley and Allen are are more than capable of each playing. You know, each being the five essentially, right? But it'll be interesting to see how Bickerstaff. Um, staggers their minutes throughout the rest of this series and the rest of the playoff picture if they're able to advance because you know their lack of size is is evident and I think that um, you know for this series it might not matter as much but it will matter for sure when they move on to the if they if they move on and play the Bucks next round uh, playing a much bigger team it'll be interesting to see how that plays out and they're really going to be feeling the departure of Kevin Love that I've already talked about a little bit earlier uh, on some earlier episodes of the podcast. Let's move things over to the Western Conference where. Uh, stuff is admittedly a lot more interesting over there, right? Uh, maybe not with the first series we're talking about because we're talking Wolves and Nuggets, right? Um, I'm liking my pick. I picked uh, Nuggets in four. Um, and despite game two being a little bit rocky, um, you know, things are still certainly going as planned. It's a 2-0 series advantage for the Nuggets. Um, but this has been a pretty fun series to watch, especially last game. So let's kind of get into it and let's talk about it from the Wolves side of things. Um you know, overall, they look like a dysfunctional, shorthanded team that is completely outmatched. That is what they've looked like in, I would argue, seven of the eight quarters that have been played so far, right? The exception being uh, their incredible, incredible third quarter uh, against the Nuggets in game two, where they basically made a 20-point comeback, and, and I think they even took the lead for a sec there. 
um, which was really impressive. But beyond that, you know, they look outmatched. They look like they're a team that, again, is dysfunctional, literally. Like, it doesn't make sense to watch. But I give them some benefit of the doubt because they're missing McDaniels. They're missing Nas Reed, as we've talked about before. But I don't think it changes the fact that, you know, again, we haven't seen much of Towns and Gobert together just because of Towns' injury during the regular season. And uh, this series has not done anything uh, to improve, um, you know, the feelings of Wolves fans that were concerned about that because it's been pretty tough to watch. You know, the story of the, se- the series has been twofold, right? It's been the emergence of Anthony Edwards, who um, had a really rocky run in, in the first play-in game, like we talked about. He was totally MIA against the Lakers in that first play-in game. Played a bit better against the Thunder, but he's been in full force the past two games, and especially in game two. Um, he finished with 41 points last game, and, you know, during that third quarter um, in game two, he was in complete takeover mode. He looked utterly unstoppable. You know, it's pretty amazing to think about he's listed at 6'5 because he's just so physical despite that size. Like, he's so strong. He's so fast getting to the basket. It was awesome to see him really take over the game in the third quarter where he had 13 points uh, in that span and really just do whatever he wanted. Like, you know, the Nuggets have thrown decent perimeter defenders at him, right, with Bruce Brown and Contavious Caldwell-Pope is kind of their other version of a defensive stopper, but they really couldn't do shit against Ant when he's in the mode like that. They, they, they just don't stack up at, athletically, right? Uh, but I thought the other interesting thing about that third quarter was Carl um, Anthony Towns also chipped in eight points, and that was really the only good quarter, the only good basketball we've seen from Carl from Anthony Towns, period, because he has been brutal. He has been the anchor to that team during this series. Um, despite the fact that I actually, you know, when I looked at the box score in game two, I was a little surprised because I, I really felt his presence in that third quarter. Um, but he still finished with a really bad game. Like, you know, just to put it in perspective, I know it's only a two game sample size, but he's averaging, uh, 10 and a half points a game on 30% shooting and nearly five turnovers a game, which is absolutely ridiculous. Like he's not even handling the ball enough to be putting up that kind of numbers. And then when you remember the fact that this dude is being guarded, uh, primarily from what I've seen on the other side of the ball by 36-year-old undersized Jeff Green, that is a real concern. Like, again, he's not even, you know, Jokic is a, a sneaky, decent defender for what it's worth, right? But as I talked about before, it was pretty likely he's just going to go against Gobert and, you know, hopefully take some plays off, which is what he's been doing. But Towns needs to be more aggressive, man. Like, they, and I, I think some of this has to has to come back to Chris Finch, right? Like, again, I'm not a Towns guy by any means. I think that's pretty pretty obvious at this point. But, you know, you're going to need to, like, he's a, still a special offensive player. Like, and I was just complimenting him last podcast because of how well he played against the Thunder. And, you know, despite the fact that he's, you know, on the course of his career, I think he's an over 40% three-point shooter. Like, it's really impressive. You know, despite the fact that he is that good of a shooter, he was really taken into the thunder, right? He, we recognize that they had nobody, you know, physically that could really stack up with Carl Towns, and he was taken into the basket. We've just seen no aggression from him on the off- offensive end, and I think his indecisiveness and lack of aggression is shown in, in the amount of turnovers that he's averaging. Like, he's making some really questionable passes out there. He's forcing the issue. He's, like, trying to feed Gobert a lot. It really doesn't make any sense, and... It's disappointing, right? This is a guy that has a pretty tough track record of underperforming in his pretty short playoff career. I guess I really shouldn't say that. I mean, he was just really bad against the Grizzlies last year, and that's really all the experience he has. Um, But it's pretty disappointing if you're a Wolves fan because that loss falls squarely on the shoulders of Carl Towns, in my opinion, because outside of that third quarter, he was MIA. Uh, But anyways, that's really all I'll say on the Wolves. I think this series is as good as over. I think... In that third quarter last game, you got the best version of the Wolves. Like, they rallied. You know, they made a big run. They they took the lead. 
But the fact that they still ended up blowing that game, that makes me have zero confidence. Like, I understand the series is going back to Minnesota uh, for games three and four, so maybe they'll get a jolt. I know that the crowd will be raucous up there at the Target Center, uh, but I don't know if it's going to make a difference, man. I think that it's going to be a momentum killer that they fought all the way back just to lose, you know, pretty handily uh, to the Nuggets in game two. So I think it's over for the Wolves. But moving on to the Nuggets, man, because I'm excited. You know, clearly I've been a Denver defender. And honestly, looking back, I you know, I sound like a, a little bit of a Fairweather fan right now because I never really explained what, like, why I was picking Denver so much outside of them being the healthiest of the contenders in the West and, and thinking that the West is wide open. But I'm a big Jamal Murray guy, and I know it's super, super lame to be talking about that the night after he has a massive 40-point game uh, to beat the Timberwolves. But that's what we're going to do, right? Because Murray's been incredible. Um, you can make the argument he's been the best player on the Nuggets. I wouldn't go quite that far because even though Jokic's point totals are down, he's still doing so much for them if you really watch the games. But Murray's been incredible. I mean, again, two-game sample size, but he's averaging 32-7-6. and six. Um, and he looks special, right? He looks like the same dude that we saw in the bubble a couple years ago. And then obviously he had that terrible injury that kept him out all of last year and, and basically half of the season before. It's actually been um, almost exactly a little over two years since he, he tore that ACL. Uh, but just with how things kind of shook out with the season falling and, and the changing schedule because of COVID and everything like that, he, you know, it, it's been, a, it, it feels like. Um, it, it's been shorter than that, but it really has been a full two years uh, since that initial injury. So hopefully he's close to 100% because he certainly looks it. And the reason I like him so much is within the flow of Denver's offense, he's really like the prototypical player you would want alongside a guy like Jokic. Like the way that team is constructed is just really, really impressive. Like you have this, you know, this point center that sees the floor better than any big man ever really and what I like about Murray is how dangerous he is off the ball because he's a 40%, you know, 40 plus percent three point shooter. Um, that's incredibly dangerous in the catch and shoot situation. But when he gets into his offense, he's so fun to watch. He's so smooth. He can create his own shot. He's, he's basically got limitless range. Um, and so what he, what he's really been cooking, man, like that, that's, that is, it, that much is clear. You know, he's averaging 30 something points. He had a good game in game one too. Um, and he's really the one that brought them back in that game against the wolves. Cause as I was saying, you know, the wolves fought all the way back. They took the lead and Jokic, I, I mean, Jokic always looks kind of awkward and, and exhausted when he's out there, but there was a stretch where, uh, you know, Murray wasn't being as aggressive as he should have been. And, and the nuggets offense as a whole just looked off in that third quarter where, you know, they were just kind of like, okay, you know, the Wolves are coming back. They have the momentum. Like, let's get the ball to Jokic. Let's get the, get the ball to Jokic and have him get us a bucket. But that's not really how Jokic rolls. And, you know, to Jokic's credit, he's he's playing against Rudy Gobert, who's, again, a, what, a three- or four-time Defensive Player of the Year winner. Like, again, I, I said in the last podcast I didn't think Gobert was going to you know, do much on ball on Jokic to slow him down. But to his credit, he really did during stretches of last game, like, they were just giving Jokic the ball at the high post, and he's like, you know, head faking and jab stepping, and you know, Gobert stayed in front of him. He didn't really buy on the bite on the fakes that much, and that's just a tough matchup for Jokic, right? Like, I don't think that 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 wasn't going to solve their problems, right? They needed to get Jokic out in transition and creating for others. So I was just really impressed to see, you know, Jamal Murray being able to um, take the offense into his own hands. He's the reason that they ended up steadying the ship and winning that game. Um, so I'm really impressed. I'm, I'm excited about my pick for, for Denver to come out of the West. I, I love what I'm seeing from Jamal Murray. I think that this is an opportunity for him to really enter the conversation of a top five point guard in the league, which 
maybe that sounds like an exaggeration to some, and maybe it doesn't sound like that much of an accomplishment to others, depending on how you look at it. But with how many good point guards are in the league, for him to be in the top five conversation, um, he's certainly playing like it right now. And if he continues it, um, I think Denver is going to kind of, you know, if he if he keeps up at this ridiculous level, um, Denver is actually going to be cruising to the finals. So, uh, you know, I think that's enough of, of me kind of slobbing on uh, Jamal Murray. Uh, I apologize for that, but it's it's nothing we haven't seen before, right? Uh, anyway, moving on, uh, you know, Jokic is, uh, only averaging, you know, 20 points per game, but he is averaging his 12 and eight. Um, so I think you're fine. I don't think you're too worried about Jokic. Like I said, it's, it can be a, a tricky matchup at times, uh, you know, with him facing up against Gobert. Uh, and I think Michael Porter Jr. Uh, in his, you know, he hasn't been involved too much, but he's shooting the ball really well this series. His jumper, every time he shoots the ball, you think that thing's going in. He looks smooth. Um, and for him being a third option offensively, I think that they're in a really good spot. Let's move on to Grizzlies versus Lakers, right? I think that this, you know, above all else, was a, a totally a tale of two games, right? Uh, you know, Lakers came out game one in Memphis, obviously a, a very tough place to play. Um, and they and they beat them pretty good, right? I mean, it was a competitive game. Unfortunately, we saw Ja get hurt in that game, um, which was certainly significant, but it was still impressive that the Lakers were able to, I think they ended up closing game one on like a 15-0 run. Like it was totally dominant for them down the stretch, especially on the defensive side of the ball. And you saw role players like Rui Hachimura uh, and Austin Reeves, like really take over that game, right? Like, you know, LeBron and Anthony Davis had solid games, but, you know, you know, when your role players play a game like that, that is what inevitably is going to swing the matchup. But game two was a, a completely different story, right? Like Davis, you know, let's talk about Anthony Davis for a sec. He's been incredible, like incredible on the defensive side of the ball. Um, like I'm talking, you know, defensive player of the year. If he played like this and played more games during the regular season, like I think he's averaging, like I think he's had like five plus blocks in both games. Like it's been insane. Um, the ability that he's had to, you know, play help defense and protect the rim. Um, but on the offensive side of the ball in game two, it was embarrassing, right? He finished with 13 points and um, he just was so passive on offense. It was really disappointing. And and I guess he, he took, he, you know, did take a decent amount of shots and ended up, um, they just weren't falling for him, but it was just embarrassing as a whole for the Lakers, right? Uh, again, John Morant got hurt in game one. He was ruled out for the rest of that game. He didn't play at all in game two. And I feel like, you know, I can't help but feel like the Lakers got a bit complacent, which is ridiculous, right? Like, all you did was win game one. And the reason you won game one was because, again, Rui Hachimura and Austin Rees went crazy. You can't really bank on those guys being able to repeat those type of performances. Um, and I don't know, maybe it was just, you know, the fact that they won game one and, and the fact that Ja was hurt and they took the team for granted. But, you know, it's a quintessential trap game. Like, how, if you have a team with LeBron James and Anthony Davis that have won a title, like, how do you fall into that rut? Like, you're still the seven seed. Like, you're not, you weren't, I don't know if they were favorites, uh, Vegas favorites to win before this series started. But, you know, either way, you're playing in Memphis. It's a tough place to play. And Jaws been out for, you know, he missed 20-something games during the regular season. And Memphis was still a really good team. Um, but it's just disappointing that the Lakers, you know, it's be one thing for them just to lose that game, but it really did seem like a lack of effort, a lack of aggression. And it was mainly on the offensive side of the ball. Like their defense was fine. They held the Grizzlies to 103 points. And, you know, the Grizzlies offense is, is it's not going to be special without John Morant. That much we know. Uh, but for them to only score 93 points and, and just, you were just kind of waiting when you were watching the game, you're just waiting for them to make that run and turn it on. And they just... I don't think that they're that type of team that has that switch. Like, they're certainly a good team. You know, they could end up making it to the West Finals or maybe even the Finals if things really break their way. 
But I don't think that they're, they're some sort of powerhouse. It's not 2020 anymore. Um, it was just embarrassing that they came out of the gates that stagnant. Um, Grizzlies were in the driver's seat that whole game. So uh, I, I still think the Lakers end up winning this series, um, especially with the, you know, them being 1-1 uh, and these you know, next couple games going to be in Los Angeles. I think that that bodes well for the Lakers' chances, especially with Joff still banged up. But, you know, it wasn't impressive. I'm not overall impressed with the Lakers. And um, I think whoever wins this series is really going to be in deep shit next, uh, with, in the next round uh, with either the Kings or the Warriors. It's looking like it's going to be the Kings, which we'll talk about in a sec. But anyway, let's talk about the Grizzlies real quick. Uh, you know, again, they've been without job many times this year. They've been a good team. That continued last night. Um, I've been pretty impressed with Jaron Jackson Jr., mainly on the offensive side of the ball. We know what he brings on defense. But he stayed out of trouble for the most part. Um, and it was really entertaining to see Xavier Tillman shoot like 100% from the field and completely outplay Anthony Davis last game, um, you know, the 6-7 center. Uh, I think that that's a bit of an anomaly. I wouldn't expect that again. I uh, wouldn't expect that again, but I guess I guess it kind of breaks even with the role players taking over for the Lakers in game one. Uh, but we'll see. Again, I'm feeling good about the Lakers, uh, my pick for the Lakers, um, and was impressed with the Grizzlies' effort in game two, but we'll see how the rest of that series shakes out. Let's move on to the most talked about series and definitely the most fun series to watch so far in Kings versus Warriors. Now, I, like many others, did pick the Warriors to win this series. I, I thought that they would pull it out in six games, be able to, you know, at least still one of the two games in Sacramento, uh, one of the first two games in Sacramento. The Warriors were not able to do that, but they were really fantastic games, man. I mean, I wasn't able to watch game one live, but I did end up kind of watching that back, especially the close of it. And it was awesome to see. You know, Curry still get his shots up. You know, the way that Fox closed out really both of these games has been incredibly impressive. But I wanted to take a look, first of all, because if you're a Warriors fan, like, what is your level of panic? What is your level of concern? Because it's, it's getting rocky. I mean, 2-0 is, is no joke. And, and the Kings are playing well. Like, that's kind of the thing, right? Like, I don't think it's as much about the Warriors playing bad as it is the Kings, you know, keeping that same level of energy and offensive output that they'd had during the regular season and they they've proved that it's not a fluke right like the Warriors really just have to be able to um, take it to another level if they're going to beat this team because it doesn't look like Sacramento slowing down so what is the level of panic right um, because we got some humongous news yesterday um, and I know that this game is tonight uh, but we, we found out that Draymond is going to be suspended, right? So I would say that the level of panic uh, for he's suspended for one game for game three, that is a game that's taking place later tonight. And I would say that the level of panic went from like, like a six to like an eight, I would say with the, the Draymond absence, right? Because um, again, maybe a six to start is low because you know, you say two Oh, but again, I don't think that this series is over. Let me, I should, I should be more forward about saying that. I don't think this series is over at all, right? Like the Warriors, we know that they're a terrible road team. And if they're just able to, you know, take care of, of business tonight and, and pull out these next two games in the Bay, which they should be able to do, um, they're right back in it, right? They're, they're really, you know, it, it'll take a 2-2 series. I knew that this was going to be close. But not having Draymond and the Kings having that shred of hope and that shred of, hey, they don't have their defensive anchor, like that definitely raises the bar a little bit to we're looking at like an eight on the panic scale. Like obviously it's a must win game for the Warriors at this point, but uh, it's going to be rocky. It's going to be tough to see what that defense looks like and, and how the Warriors are able to get out in transition on the other end without Draymond leading the break in a lot of those situations. But I have to give my thoughts on why he's suspended, right? Let's talk about the stomp. I know that that's been uh, <laughs> the stomp, the Draymond stomp. Uh, we know that that's been talked about at nauseum. Uh, on the on you know big sports media over the past couple of days, and I know I'm late to the party, but I still wanted to cover it, right? Like my reaction when I watched it was, 
I immediately jump back to the 2016 finals, right? It's a comparison that many have made where, you know, Draymond had that, you know, scuffle with LeBron and he ended up getting suspended for game five, which totally swung the series and the Cavs ended up winning despite the Warriors. Um, Almost certainly, you know, you would make the argument the Warriors were the better team. I mean, they had 73 wins that year. But it reminded me of that incident specifically because in both situations, Draymond was the one that retaliated, right? Everyone knows Draymond is... You know, some people say he's a dirty player. I don't necessarily agree with that. I know he's had some questionable plays over the years, but he's an intense guy. He's an aggressive guy. So it's interesting in, in both of these situations where he was, again, the person retaliating uh, to, to an act on, uh, by somebody on the other team, right? In 2016, you know, LeBron and him kind of got in a, in a scuffle and LeBron stepped over him and Draymond felt that that was disrespectful and kind of swung at him and, and hit him in the nuts a little bit. Uh, and again, that act alone in 2016 wasn't, you know, what caused him to get suspended. It was because he got a technical for that and he was already at the, you know, number of technicals uh, at the point in the season where he had a certain number of technicals accumulated where the next one that he got would result in a suspension. So he didn't know that going in, but again, that act on its own wasn't enough to get him suspended. Whereas, you know, this one, it was, right? He he stomped on DeMontis Sabonis. Um, and so that act alone is, is what got him suspended, which I think was the right call for the league, right? Because... You go back to the play, you know, earlier this week, you know, Sabonis does grab his ankle, right? It's a similar situation where Draymond's kind of stepping and and Sabonis grabs his ankle. And if you're Draymond, the right move, you know, you, you kind of got a layup, right? The, the right move in that situation is just, just to flop. You flop. Like, you could have got a technical on Sabonis. You could have got, you know, some momentum. You could have got a couple shots in the ball. He went the total other way. He was so bewildered that somebody was aggressive to him that he went completely off the rails and stomped on the guy's chest. Now, I don't think it was a full stomp, and I, I think Sabonis did an incredible job of selling it. But the point remains, it doesn't matter. I think Sabonis did everything right. Like, I don't know if he was really thinking with a, a you know, had the right head on his shoulders when he grabbed Draymond's ankle, because that's never really a good move. But if he was trying to poke the bear because he knew Draymond was going to be overly aggressive, then he made the right decision. Um, and he certainly sold it. I mean, maybe he was hurt. I don't know. But I, I certainly think it was acting on the part of Sabonis, which I give him credit for. Um, but it just shows that Draymond's never going to change, right? Like, that edge that he plays with, that aggression that he plays with, that makes him the player that he is, right? Um, the Warriors need a guy like that. You need an edge guy. You need a Rodman of, of that great team, of that dynasty, for them to achieve the level of success that they have. But it is disappointing that he's never going to be able to think with a clear head in that situation. Um, you know, if he was able to flop and go the other way, he could have, you know, swung the momentum massively and, and Sabonis that easily was enough to get him teed up. Um, but sadly that wasn't the case and Draymond took it too far. He's, he stomped on Sabonis, uh, and he deserved the suspension. I think Silver was at that game. I think that's been said. Uh, and it's just such a terrible look. Like you can't have it looking like WWE out there and then have him just play the next game, especially with him having zero remorse. He's going back and forth with the Kings crowd. Which, in a vacuum, I like. I think that that's fun. I think it makes it entertaining. But you can't really be doing that, especially if, after you stomp on the on the best player or the second best player on the opposing team. That's that's not going to fly. So uh, don't feel bad for Draymond. I think he definitely deserves it. But it, it puts Golden State in a really tough spot. Um, kind of circling back to basketball here and focusing on the series itself. I think it's so entertaining because it's two teams fighting fire with fire, right? It's all offense all the time. It's all transition. Um, they're kind of running like a similar type of offense, but... 
Uh, the Kings are kind of doing it at a higher level just because I think Fox, oddly enough, has just been the best player in the series, right? Um, the Warriors have struggled to defend him, clearly. Um, and Peyton has done his best. Gary Payton II has done his best to try to guard him, but he's really not slowing him down at all. While on the other side of the ball, Davion Mitchell has been really impressive for the Kings. And, uh, you know, Curry's still getting his points, don't get me wrong, but he's having to work for everything, right? That's really all you can do with a player as great as Steph. Um, and Davion Mitchell, despite only being six feet tall, um, has been knocking down his open shots, and he's been defending Steph about as well as you can ask. So uh, it is really fun to watch. Um, as far as other observations on this series, uh, I think Wiggins looks good. I, I don't think you would, if you just saw these past couple games, you wouldn't really expect him um, to have missed as much time as he did in the at the end of the regular season. Like the fact that, you know, game one of this series where, you know, again, he has to play in front of a, a Sacramento crowd that hasn't seen playoff basketball in like 14 years. Um, for him to just step into that game and, um, you know, be able to kind of contribute at a high level, I think is impressive. But it's totally offset by the fact that Jordan Poole's on a milk carton, right? He's totally MIA. He's playing horrible basketball. Um, I hate Jordan Poole. I'm going to come out and say it. It, it drove me nuts. He was uh, my least favorite person on the Warriors during that, you know, finals run last year, especially as they were playing the Celtics. Like, I don't th even last year, he wasn't great, but he was better than what he was. Like, you know, they, they, Definitely, with how good of defense Davion Mitchell is playing on Steph, they need that secondary creator. And they're really going to need him in Game 3, um, especially without Draymond, because Draymond's not, you know, a creator, a shot creator himself, but he does create for others. You know, it is going to be an adjustment for that offense. And, you know, Clay's been really good, but he's never going to be one to create his own shot. You do need Jordan Poole to be that guy, especially for the amount of money that he's making. And again, with how well Wiggins is playing, it's completely offset by the point that, uh, by the fact that Poole is playing really bad basketball. So, again, just to put a ball on this, I can't wait. That game is starting within a couple hours here, so I'm excited to watch. The Warriors are down, but they're not out. It really, you know, it sounds dumb, but it, it's it, the series is not going to be settled until um, a home team loses one of these games. Um, I think it's very, like, you know, I would say, if anything, watch out, right? Like, watch out for the Warriors, because if they are able to pull out, this is going to sound really dumb if they lose, by the way, but... <laughs> If if they end up winning this game and they go back to the bay for game, well, they're already back to the bay tonight. Uh, but they, you know, again are back in the the bay again for game four, and they have Draymond back, and they just, you know, just won and pulled out a game. Like I think they're going to be heavy, heavy favorites to win game four. Um, so we'll see, man. We'll see what it does. I, I think that. You know, even without Draymond, it could be enough of a boost for how good of a home team that they've been this season. Um, for them to, you know, have E forty back in the building. <clears throat> That was such a shitty E40. I might have to edit that out. Uh, anyway, um, <laughs> have an E40 back in the building. Uh, could be good vibes for the Warriors. Uh, I do think that they're going to be able to win tonight despite Draymond, but if they don't, the series is totally over. So I'll, I'll just be watching just like you guys. I'm excited to see how it plays out. The last series that we're going to be talking about today um, is, of course, going to be Clippers versus Suns, right? Uh, it's a 1-1 series right now. Um, and it really feels like the Suns are catching the break. That's kind of the biggest, the biggest takeaway that I have. And, and the reason why I say that is because the Clippers look good, man. The Clippers, like Kawhi has been so incredible. Um, he's been the best player on the floor through two games. There's no question about that. But it feels like the Suns are catching a break because um, I don't even know if they end up winning game two. If Paul George is back out there, like obviously that's a massive if uh, or, you know, a massive what if if Paul George is back out there. Uh, and they're catching a major break again for Game 3 because it was just announced earlier today that Kawhi has some knee soreness and he's going to be out for Game 3. And with how good he's playing, this is totally out of the blue. 
Um, I guess it's not entirely shocking just given, you know, Kawhi's extended injury history, but it's super disappointing, right? Like we're seeing really special stuff, really special, excuse me, two-way stuff out of Kawhi, especially, um, you know, the way he's been able to defend Durant in stretches um, and take over on offense has been really fun to watch. And it, again, I just feel like the Suns are kind of catching the break a little bit. Um, it does look like, you know, Kevin Durant needs to be more aggressive. You can tell that he's new to this team. I don't think he's playing bad per se, but there's just been weird stretches where he just hasn't touched the ball as much as, as he should, um, especially given his shooting this season, man. Like, I I should have talked about this on the All-NBA podcast, but, like, um, I think he averaged, like, it was it was better than, like, a 50-40-90. It was, like, damn near, like, a it was, like, a 60-45-90 like season uh, for Kevin Durant, which is absolutely nuts. I know I, I got some of those percentages wrong, but uh, obviously he wasn't in the All-NBA conversation because he played, like, 40-something games, and, and that's just not enough for, for most people that vote on it. Um, but Kevin Durant's been, you know, up, he's playing some of the best basketball of his entire life this season. And so I don't think you would really know that just by watching the first couple games. And it's, again, not because of how bad he's playing, but just a lack of aggression. Um, so I think that's on Monty Williams a little bit to get him more involved and um, kind of take over. I'm sure he'll have a massive game, you know, probably probably next game, but as, certainly at some point this series. Um, so I'm still feeling good about the Suns overall because Kawhi is out. I do think it would be really disappointing for Phoenix to not uh, win this game three without Kawhi, obviously still without Paul George. He's not going to be back at all this series. So uh, we will see. But if the Suns advance, which I think that they will, uh, I still feel pretty good about the Suns overall. Uh, I just, again, think that they're kind of catching a break by, by you know, catching this Clippers team not at full health. But, you know, then again, that's the, kind of the story of the Clippers as a whole, right? Uh, so I think that just about covers it, man. I, I wanted to zoom around and, and look at all these matchups and give my early thoughts. Obviously, um, you know, the playoffs is, is, is about as fun as it gets, man. The first round, you got three, you know, two to three games every single night. So it's a blast. Uh, you know, they're really killing me. I'm, I'm on central time. I know a lot of folks listening to this are out there on East coast time. And so it must be brutal, dude. Like you're, if you're want to stay up for the end of these games, like you're up till like 1am, 1.30am. Uh, it's ridiculous. So uh, I wish they would schedule these games at more neutral times, but we will we will get that in round two, certainly when, you know, half of these teams are eliminated in a couple weeks. Um, but overall, I think, you know, a lot of these series has kind of gone chalk, but then you get, you know, a curveball every once in a while with how well the Clippers are playing and how well the Kings have played. So um, it's fun, man. You really never know what's going to happen with how many good players there are in the league. Um, and I think, especially next series, we're going to see this ramped up to another level where um, any one of the teams that are going to advance, you know, have... Uh, at least somewhat of a finals opportunity um, or a, a, I should say championship opportunity. So it's going to be a lot of fun. But uh, with that, I am going to be wrapping up here in a sec. Uh, likely we'll come back to you guys on Monday of next week. Um, hopefully there's enough to talk about within the next couple of days. There should be, I'll try to get back on my normal uh, either Sunday or Monday upload schedule. So that's what you can expect from me. Uh, but I think that just about covers it, man. I will uh, get up out of here before I do that. Have to remind you guys to follow at Words with Wallace on everything on Facebook, on Twitter, on Instagram, on YouTube, on Spotify, Apple Music, wherever you get your podcasts. Share the show, rate and review, man. Do me a solid trying to grow this thing out. Really appreciate you guys for uh, for listening to this episode and showing the support that you have. Uh, that would just mean a lot to me to continue doing that. So I'm going to hit this button, man. Get up out of here, and I will talk to you early next week. Have a good one, guys. Peace. <laughs>